0: Good morning, holy ones, Good morning. Who, who abide in him, who has no beginning and has no end. Our life. So awesome. I want to share a few thoughts this morning about something that I think is... I've, I've shared this before, probably a year and a half ago, maybe. Uh, it's on the website. We did maybe two or three messages on this, in fact. But, hey, Jason. but I want to do like a quick little summary of it. It's really, really important, I think, that we... See this? It's a, it's a, it's a teaching that's out there that's almost considered a given. It's a teaching that's out there among the churches that's almost considered like, well, of course, yeah, of course, we know about that. And it's wrong. It's hugely wrong. Um, And no one is really reconsidering this and looking at this. And and it needs to be looked at and it needs to be corrected. Um, It's a thinking that. Even though you're saved, even though you're righteous in Jesus, even though you're a son and daughter of God, even though you're going to heaven, even though all that's true by grace and faith alone and what Jesus did, you're still going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for your life. Duh! We're in a covenant where God remembers our sin no more. We're in a covenant where he does not impute any iniquity ever. Zero, zero. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. Where, where you're not under law, but under grace, sin is not even imputed. All of that is washed away if we have in the back of our minds that we are still, as a believer, as a son, a daughter of God, we still are going to have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. No, we're not. It makes no sense. That's exactly right. It's a schizophrenic theological thinking that it, that that can be a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump in your bold access to God and bold living on earth in God. Yeah. What about the rewards? There are rewards. We're going to talk about that. See, that they confuse the rewards because there will be some... Jesus said, on earth, there will be some who bear 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold fruit. And there are rewards for all these things that we're not supposed to be too worried about. Because God will take care of that. But yes, there are rewards. But there is no, not one moment when anything that is not Christ living through you is going to be addressed in heaven. Like the old Keith Green song, that all that matters now is what Christ did through me. That's all that matters. The The fruit. It's going to be all good, all good. Because it's not a matter of, of you trying to atone for anything anymore. Christ himself has atoned for all sin. He's either done it or he has not. Yes. See? So, yeah, I want to talk about the reward issue briefly, too. Because it's a lot to put it together in one message. But um, saints, really have to think about this. Because in the back of your mind, if you still have a thinking... I mean, you have these verses that come to your mind. For you shall give an account of every idle word you've ever spoken... Well, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the legalists who, who were self-righteous and thought they were righteous. And he said, he said, you think you're obeying the law? You think you're doing good? Every idle word you'll give an account of. Everything. If you're going to stand in your own righteousness, good luck. Is what he was saying. And that's what he was saying on the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, he said you've heard that it, it is written, thou shalt not commit adultery. And you Pharisees think you're doing great by not committing adultery. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth. If you've lusted one time in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So good luck. And trying to be righteous. And you who think you've done really good because you haven't murdered anybody, I'll tell you the truth the spirit of the law is if you have hate in your heart toward one person one time, you've committed murder. So good luck. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was doing. He was blazing righteousness as it really is before God. He was, the Scripture says Messiah would come and magnify the law. He would bring the, the true righteousness of Christ, of God Himself, shining upon the people, so that people would say, oh my gosh, there is none good, no, not one. Who can be saved? See, that's the response God wanted. So He could say, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He became sin for us. All sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And what this thinking that the church has out there, that the the believer is still going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of their life, is a fly in the ointment. It's a a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump. Eventually, it eats away at your life when you fail and make mistakes and we walk after the flesh sometimes and we're trying to learn how to live by him and we wonder you know is he pleased with me does he love me as much today as he did yesterday because i did a good i did good things yesterday but today i'm not doing too many good things today so does he love me today as much as he did and it eats away at the at the awesomeness of what christ did jude's word is is sure For he is able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling back is what the Greek means, stumbling back in unbelief. He's able to keep you from stumbling back in unbelief and to present you blameless with exceeding joy in the presence of his glory. Awesome. That is our hope. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Not Christ in me plus doing good things. Being a good little Christian because I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of my life. No. Anyway. We have to look at this. And you know, this is what's so cool about this. There's only two verses in the entire entire Bible. Two verses. That have the phrase, the judgment seat of Christ. Just two. We're going to look at those two. And then I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask you to... Turn to the book of Revelation because Revelation is the veil pulled back and we see things in the unseen, right? We see the bride. We see the great white throne judgment. We see all these things in Revelation, right? Then I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation and find the place in the book of Revelation that says the, the, the church, the believer, those who are partakers of the first resurrection have to stand before God and give an account of their lives. It's not there. It's not there. There is not a single scene in the book of Revelation that shows the Christian, the bride, giving an account of her life. Not a single one. Did God leave out something really important there? I mean, I mean, He's showing us all these things that happen in the heavenlies at the end of the world, at the end of time, when everything's wrapped up. Where is the judgment seat of Christ in the book of Revelation? Where is it where the saints line up and give an account of their lives? And on the big screen, all that they've done in their lives is seen so we can decide what reward you get and what reward you don't get. Where is that in the book of Revelation? It's not there. Why isn't there? It's not there because the bride comes down from above having the glory of God with no spot and no blemish or any wrinkle or any such thing for he has washed her with the washing of the word of the gospel and presented himself, herself to him perfect in Christ. That's another verse in Ephesians 5 that people misuse. You know, the washing of the word that, you know, God's preparing a bride. He's getting the bride cleaner and cleaner and more pure. And, and this, the way you do that is through the washing of the word. And they teach that as if, you know, reading the Bible, it, you know, will cleanse you. Yes? I was going to say, lot is recorded by God in the Word. as a righteous lot. All his failings. It doesn't record the failings. It records the it right. It's a righteous lot. Mm-hmm. Say it again. That's righteous lot. Right, yes. lot righteous. Yes. All his failings, or all not recorded. He doesn't look at it. He yes. That's, it's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. He doesn't look at that because... He has looked at it. And he's not going to look at it again. He looked at it on his son. He made him to be sin for us. All of it. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And saints, we said this before, but it's not just that you don't have just imputed righteousness. That's what the old saints had before Christ. There was no new creation before Christ. It was impossible. The Spirit could not be given in a regenerative, regenerative way until Christ was glorified, John says. So there was no new creation. There was no way to create people anew. There was no way to join people to God before Christ came and accomplished His work of death and resurrection. No way. The Spirit could not be given until Christ was glorified and all sin atoned for. So all people before Christ descended to shield. They descended because they have righteousness just imputed as reckoned to them through their faith. But not actual righteousness. Which is why Jesus had to descend first from the cross and tell the thief, This day you shall be with me in paradise. Another word for Abraham's bosom. This day we're going down. We're going down now and set them free. We're going down and taking captivity captive. We're going to go down and I have the keys now of Hades and death. And I'm going to open the gates. And they're going to all be released. They're waiting for the work of Messiah on the earth. The blood had to be shed on the earth. So you don't have just imputed righteousness like the old saints. Reckoned only. We do have that because it's not our own righteousness. We do have that. But beyond just a gift of righteousness that's imputed, you have a miracle, actual righteousness, a new creation such that he could join himself to us. He cannot join himself to just something that's a legal fiction. You know, gift of righteousness only, uh, reckoned righteousness only, Imputed righteousness to only know God, who is spirit, must join himself to that which is perfect and holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle, has no past and no future, no whatever. And he did that. He raised us from the dead and he joined himself to us because we are now a new creation in him. Even though we are in these bodies, these earthen vessels, he has quarantined the power of sin into the in these bodies and the members of our bodies. The apostles taught. And though we still stumble and fall sometimes because we are learning how to live by Him within, the real you really cannot sin. The real you cannot sin. 1 John, for the seed of God abides within you and you cannot sin. Your only problem with sin really is because you're in this body. Absent from the body, body will be present with the Lord. Now we see through a glass darkly, we prophesy in part. But then we shall know all things even as we are known. When you're free from this brain of this creation, the new man will be, oh, yes. And you will know all things as you are known. It's awesome. A new creation. You're not becoming a new creation either. It's not a a process where you become a new creation. The process is the manifestation of the new creation. Always distinguish between the reality and the manifestation of the reality. The orange tree and the oranges. Distinguish between the reality, the unseen reality that God sees and men do not see, and the manifestation of the reality which God sees and man sees. Let your light so shine that men may see what's inside of you, that they may know your Father in heaven. You see? You're not becoming more and more righteous and more and more holy. You are. You are. And as the mind is renewed, That which is comes out and people see who you are and who God is. It's beautiful. It's genius what God did because we have a rest from beginning to end that we're not trying to work our way into God's love and favor. We're not fearful of standing before him one day and giving an account of all our lives. That's what happened on the cross. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. you take that verse and then teach but you will give an account of your sin religious schizophrenia which makes us crazy which is why the church is in such a mess that's why we're so sin conscious. That's why we can't break through to the heavens. That's why we have so many weird, uh, weird thinking in our heads about how we have to pray through to get to God and instead of resting in the reality that you are in God. Your life is hidden with Christ now, in God. Christ is in you now. What can you do to improve on that? You can't. That's, we, only, we only become aware of it. Paul says, Awaken, and Christ shall give thee light. The sleeper must awaken to what is. It's so awesome. Well, Lord, we don't have many minutes to do this, but I just want to share a few thoughts. I pray, Father, by the Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us all to see just how finished your work is. That we wait only for the redemption of the body. The final, final work. Which will be manifested for you have already raised the body. In your body but we will see it and experience it with our own eyes at your second coming. When that which is mortal shall put on immortality. The only thing we wait for is the redemption of the body. And now we live by faith. We walk in this reality, full assurance and hope, going boldly to a throne of grace, a throne of grace to find help in time of need, mercy. Thank you, Father. Thank you for teaching us these things. Help the theologians see this. Help them be bold enough to revisit this whole judgment seat of Christ's thinking, which doesn't make sense. And has become a fly in the ointment of your finished work. A bride that you have made without spot and without wrinkle or any such thing by the washing of the word of the gospel By the washing of the word of the good news. Amen. And that, by the way, is what that verse means in Ephesians 5. The washing of the word is the washing of the word, the message. When people hear the gospel and believe, that word washes his bride without spot, without wrinkle. They didn't even have a Bible, saints, in the first century. They didn't have a Bible to go study. And read so they can wash themselves by studying the Word and have Bible studies and concordances and commentaries. And you know, this idea that the early believers studied the scriptures so they could wash their, their, themselves and get more pure, it, it didn't exist. There were no, they, they could, most people couldn't even read. They couldn't read, but they could hear a message that if they believed, they'd be made without spot, without wrinkle in an instant and be born from above by the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what they had. They had an awareness of Christ in them and in their midst as they gathered a very simple but profound reality. It was awesome. And to say now that the Christian has to read the Bible to get better and better and cleaner and cleaner and purer and purer, it's just ridiculous. I mean, they were lucky to have one of Paul's letters, maybe, circulating around. And most of the Greeks couldn't read Hebrew. There was no gospel written yet. That was written... At the very end of the lives of the apostles. It was all just. They would travel and speak. And encourage the saints. There wasn't this process of washing. By reading the Bible. It was a revelation. That they had been washed. Through his death. And resurrection. Awesome. Alright. We don't have much time. Let's look at this real quick. I want to share some thoughts about this. 2 Corinthians please. Chapter 5. I told you there's only two places in in the entire Bible where the phrase judgment seat of Christ appears. One place is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. And the other place we'll look also very briefly is Romans chapter 14 verse 10. So they're both verse 10s. 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans 14.10. Only two places in the entire Bible. No mention in the book of Revelations of this so called scene where the believer stands, the believer now stands before the judgment seat of God or Christ and gives an account of their life. No mention in the book of Revelation, zero. Okay, let's look at this. Let's look at the, the biggie first, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Now, notice, let me say this first. This, these few verses we're about to read are taught widely in the church to mean that the believer need not fear their salvation. They're going to go to heaven. They're saved. They're a believer. But this is where rewards are determined. This is where they, God's going to look at their, our lives and we, we give an account of our lives to see what rewards we get or don't get. That kind of thing. Now, if that was true... Number one, if that was true, do you think Paul, in this passage, in this chapter, in the chapter before it, in the chapter after it, the whole, say the whole three chapters, big block right there, if that were true, do you think Paul would have mentioned at least one time the word reward? I mean, if that's what this scene is all about, he would have talked about rewards or gifts or something like that, right? It's never mentioned in the passage. Never mentioned. You'll see it. Another thing they say when they teach this doctrine, they say, now, this is not something to be afraid of. I mean, you're, you're, you're saved. You're a son and daughter of God. This is not a fearful thing. I mean, this, this is a place of, you know, where the Olympians would come and they would get their rewards with the olive wreath and stuff. This is a, a joyful time. I mean, some will get more rewards than others maybe, but it's not going to be a fearful thing. This is going to be an award ceremony for the believer. If that were true, if that passage is saying that, do you think Paul would have said, do you think Paul would have described this event as something terrible and full of terror? No, but he did. He did. In this passage, Paul describes this event as something we said it, he said it this way. We'll read it in a minute. He said, Knowing the terror of the Lord. And in the Greek, it means the wrath. The terror of the Lord. Knowing what it would be like to stand before God. What he's saying there, you'll see in the passage, is he's saying, Knowing what it would be like to stand before God in your own righteousness. Oh, we persuade men. That's the next phrase. We persuade men. In other words, Paul is saying... Let me tell you what I think he's saying, and then we'll read it. Paul is saying here that everybody's going to stand before God. Everybody has, has an appointment with God. An appointment with God. Everybody. And when you stand before God, you're either going to stand before God in your own righteousness and unrighteousness. Whatever you have done in your body, whether it be good or evil, you're going to stand in front of Him, either in what you have done in your body, whether good or evil, or you're going to stand before God in Christ. Where the obedience or disobedience of you is not considered, but only the obedience of one Christ Jesus. Amen. Therefore, Paul says, knowing how fearful it would be to stand before God, And give an account of what you've done in your body. Whether it be good or whether it be evil. We persuade men. To do what Paul? To be reconciled to God. Same chapter. For God was in Christ. Not counting. What men did. In their body. Whether it be good. Or evil. That we might become. The righteousness of God by faith. Is't that awesome? So what he, Paul, So what is, he, what is Paul persuading men to do? He's not persuading them here to live a good Christian life so you can have rewards. First of all, he never mentions rewards in this passage. And he certainly isn't talking about just rewards when he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the wrath, knowing the judgment, knowing how fearful it would be to stand before God in our own works, whether good or bad. So he says, we persuade men as Christ in us beseeches you. For God has reconciled the whole world into himself, not counting what they've done in their body, whether it be good or evil, not counting their sins against them, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ through faith. Isn't that beautiful? Now this is the one passage that they they all go to for this teaching. Why hasn't anyone challenged this? I mean, this is supposed to be talking about rewards, and yet rewards are never mentioned? This is supposed to be talking about a a place of just, a, a, a time when we get, you know, trophies? And yet he talks about the terror of the Lord? Why hasn't this been challenged? Okay, let's read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's go ahead and start with... Well, it's it's really good. All of it's good in chapter 5. Well, the first part of chapter 5 is talking about when we die, we will immediately be in the presence of God, that we are going to leave this body and be with Him. And there's no even thought of that being a terrible, fearful thing. It's just like this is... Awesome. When we die, we're going to be in heaven. Okay. Verse 9. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning whether at home in the body or absent from the body with the Lord, to be pleasing to Him because we love Him. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore... The fear or terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God. We, but we are made manifest. In other words, God knows who we are. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. In other words, I hope you know that we are, we are also sons and daughters of God. We are real real apostles, is what he's saying. Verse 12. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. The, the legalists were always saying that, Uh, Paul's not really an apostle, he's not teaching what's coming from Jerusalem, so he's saying look, I'm not trying to commend myself, I'm just letting you know that we are really the the real deal and we don't take pride in appearances like the legalists, but in the reality of a new creation is what he's saying. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, they claim Paul was kind of beside himself, that he was kind of crazy because he talked about these unseen realities you know, he, he he didn't keep the Sabbath holy, he didn't do his, the washings. He didn't do a lot of the things that Jewish people did and he thought, this is kind of crazy what he's talking about, how he's righteous as God is, how he's joined to God himself. He says, if we are beside ourselves, it is, it is for God. If we, are of, if we are of sound mind, which he is, it is for you. In other words, I don't care how it looks, Paul says. This is the reality. They may say that, that we're a little crazy because we're teaching this unseen reality. But I'll be crazy for Christ is what he was saying. Because th- it, this is for you to see the truth. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Now that, that's why we're crazy. That's why we're crazy in terms of you know, going here and going there and traveling and spreading the word. Because the love of Christ compels us. Compels us or controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. In other words... and. No limited atonement here either, saints. I mean, one died for all. Therefore, all died. In other words, he has judged the world. All died already. All judged. All judged. And we, the love of God compels us to tell people this good news. <coughs> But knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing what it would be like to stand before Him and give an account of whatever you've done in your body, whether it be good or whether it be evil, we therefore persuade men. And we may look crazy at times, traveling and moving from city to city and proclaiming with passion this awesome work of Christ. But it is for you that we do this. It is we, God knows us; He knows us, and I hope you know us too. That we're we're actually the real deal. That's what He's saying here, saints. You see that? He says, for Christ died for all. Therefore, we want to reach all. Look at verse 15. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's how Paul sees his life. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to go out and tell the world this message. I got, I got to tell somebody. i got to tell somebody, like the song says. i got to tell somebody. i got to tell somebody. Even though that looks crazy, sometimes Paul says, i got to do it. The love of Christ compels me because he died for all. And then look at verse 16. Well, at the end of verse 15 is awesome too. He died and rose again on their behalf. Now, these people he's talking about, that he died and rose again on their behalf, you're telling me those people that he died and rose again on their behalf are referred to the, as the people that have to give an account of what they did in their body, whether it be, whether it be good or whether it be evil? It's impossible. In the same breath, he's saying that everybody's going to give an account of their lives. Therefore, we persuade men, don't be in that position. As they say, don't be that guy that stands before God in your own righteousness and in your own sin, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Don't be that guy. We persuade men. The love of Christ compels us, for he died for all. All died. All were judged. We We are compelled to bring this word to all. You see it? And then he goes, verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh as a natural man. Yet now we know him thus no longer, for he has ascended. Therefore, if if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, don't go past this too fast. Look at verse 16 again. We know no man after the flesh anymore. What's he saying there, saints? He's saying that the whole world has been judged, which is also affirmed to Peter in the book of Acts. We had that message a while back, how God told Peter, "Call no man unholy, the whole world has been reconciled to God. But the world now must be reconciled to God. God has reconciled himself to the whole world. Everybody's been forgiven. He died for all. He sat down on the right hand of God. He's not going to do anything more, but men must receive this. See, men must receive this. Otherwise, they will die in their sin, Jesus said, if they don't receive him, if they don't believe on him, okay? So look at this. This It's so cool. We know no man after the flesh anymore. What he's saying there is that we don't don't know men after appearances anymore of what is righteous, what is not righteous. That's what he's talking about in context here because the legalists were all about appearances because we don't know men after the flesh anymore. We know men in two ways, and only two ways. They're either dead or they're alive. It's not about morals. They're either dead because he died for all, and all were dead. Well, they're alive in him, he who has the Son has the life. He who has not the Son has not the life. We know men now by the Spirit. Now, all men are either one of those categories: you're either alive in God or you're dead in your sins. You either alive in God or dead in your transgressions. You either in the Spirit or in the flesh. It's awesome. We don't know men after the flesh anymore. We don't. We don't look at the outward appearance. We don't look at how good someone's doing because it's not the issue anymore the issue is do you believe have you received him have you been raised from the dead by the gift of the Holy Spirit of life see there are only those who are alive and those who are dead and all those who are alive are righteous and all those who are dead are unrighteous but it has nothing to do with performance but only birth are you born from below or from above are you of Adam or are you of Christ it's awesome okay now let's look at this so cool Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. All things have become new. What he's saying there, saints, the new creation is not becoming. It's an act of creation. What act of creation did God ever do that took time? He said, and it was. We have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works that we merely just walk in because the good works are inside of us. That's who we are. But we were created in Christ Jesus. And when when he created man, he said... It's very good. And he created you in Christ Jesus. And he said, you are very good. You are very, very good. My son, my daughter. See? <laughs> creation, by definition, is not a process. Creation, by definition, is instantaneous. He said, and it was. Again, remember, the process is the manifestation of the unseen, invisible creation. The process is a Manifestation, the, the gradual manifestation of what is unseen is the process. That's the renewal of the mind. That's the fruit bearing that comes forth. But what is, is. Okay, now let's finish up right here. So cool. Verse 18 Now all these things are from God. All this is from God. None, man cannot take credit for any of this. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of this reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating or begging through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, that thought... Is just a few breaths away from the thought that he just wrote about the judgment seat of Christ. Think about it, Saints. Religion has blinded us. That thought I just read from Paul's own pen. Is that the speaker. Is it like loose? Maybe if you could just hold that, I think that I see that wire moving a little bit. Maybe it's slow. It's probably just short or something. No, the enemy doesn't want this message to get out. But you see what I'm saying, those saints? It's so clear. How can you read that? How can, they, how can anybody read that? That he said, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, for he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteous, righteousness of God in him in Him. The moment you're in Him, you're the righteousness of God. But you have to believe, because we are, Paul says, we're begging the world to be reconciled to God. God's already reconciled Himself to the world. You see it? So what this is, is, oh, it's very simple. It's a simple, Paul is simply saying here that everybody's going to have to stand before God. And you can either stand before God in your own, with your own life, Whether what what you have done in your body, whether good or evil, or you can stand before God in Christ. Therefore, we persuade men to believe, to be reconciled to God. Can you hold that thought for a second? Thanks. I know I'm running out of time. Um, Is is that making sense? We need to be bold about this, saints. Oh, it might be this. Sorry about that. Cool. And this real quick. Let me look at this real quick in 1 Corinthians. I know this takes longer than but I just wanted to throw these out these thoughts out here so we can begin to just just think about them again. I know we've looked at it before. Okay, when you get a chance, read this, chapter 3, verse 11. Through verse 17 chapter 11 I mean chapter 3 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11 through 17 now that is the passage where we talk where you, we've always heard that um, be careful how you what how you lay on this foundation which is Jesus you know are you going are you building on your foundation wood hay and stubble or gold silver and precious jewels because the the analogy there is that when if you're building with wood hay and stubble and fire comes, Guess what's going to burn up? The wood, hay, and stubble. Not the foundation, because your own foundation that Paul says here is, which is Jesus himself. But in your life, if you build your life in, uh, uh, with law and, and legalism and trying to do your best for God, but not, never really walking in the power of the Spirit to bear fruit that remains, then your life work could have been just up for nothing because it was just wood, hay, and stubble. But if we walk by this power of the Holy Spirit and God is bearing fruit that remains in our life, we are building on that foundation, which is Christ, gold, silver, precious jewels. And the analogy is when, the, when fire hits that, it doesn't hurt. The jewels remain, in fact, even shine brighter. Now, this fire has been... What they have done is taken this passage, which is from a different letter. It's not even the same letter of Paul. This is 1 Corinthians. The other one was, was 2 Corinthians. The mention of a fire here in, in 1 Corinthians is... They tie that in with the judgment seat of Christ... See, there's no reference to a judgment seat of Christ here at all, just the rewards. So they they tie the fire with the judgment seat of Christ. This fire is not the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not even mentioned in here. The fire is the fires and trials of life. Peter said, think it not strange, the fiery trial of life. Think it not strange. Um, Peter says, our faith is tried by fire in this fallen world. Fire. Jesus described it as wind and rain and storms beat on two houses. One house stood, one did not. He's talking about life, the trials of life. In other words, if your foundation is in Christ and you're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, bold in your, your reality of who you are as a son of God, you're going to bear much fruit. Jesus said, you abide in me and I abide in you. My words abide in you. Don't forget what what I've told you about who I am and who you are. You abide in me, depend on me, you'll bear much fruit. That's the fruit that remains, Jesus says. The fruit that remains, silver, gold, precious jewels. So that when the fires of life, the trials of life hit us, tragedy, persecution, death, bombings in Boston, earthquakes in China and Oklahoma, bombings, explosions in Texas, Houses leveled. People dismembered at a race. Eight-year-old boy dies. When the fires of life hit us, you will not give up hope of God. You will not give hope of life. You will not be deceived by the enemy to say your God is a bad God because you have been built in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will bear much fruit and many will see your testimony and many will see his hand in your life in the midst of this awesome, in this awesome work that God has done. And many will believe and you will bear much fruit. You see, this is not some fire God's going to put you through after you leave this earth. No, the fire is here. The fiery trial of this world, the fiery trial of persecution and judgment and earthquakes and disease and all the things we have to battle in this world, but through prayer and through the power of God, we can overcome, we can walk through these things victoriously because of who we are and who he is in us. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And you will bear much fruit by your words and by your life of courage and confidence in Christ. You see that? That's what he's talking about here. But if you build your life, if you build on Christ, you know, if I do good, God loves me, and if I don't do good, God doesn't love me, and... I'm going to be a good boy because I want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and get a reward. Or I, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm going to do the best I can. If you have this legalistic thinking, your life is going to be, when, when, the, when the stuff hits the fan, you're going to wonder where God is. Because you haven't had that intimacy, that reality that we talked about last Sunday. Only one thing is needful. Christ. And Christ alone. Gold, silver, and precious jewels will be built on the foundation of Christ in your life. And many will see it, and you will bear much fruit. Hebrews says, and I'll close here, that we all must die and face the judgment. We all must die and face the judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die and face the judgment. Next verse, which is never read, hardly ever read, on Christian radio just the other day on WTLN. On WTLN, the new Christian radio, WT, the new WTLN. I get so frustrated with And they'll read this passage. For it is important to men once to die and face the judgment. And just leave everybody hanging. <laughs> and they go on to some other program. No, that's not the gospel. The next line says, So also, or in the same way, Christ died, took my appointment with death, and bore the sins of the world. The judgment. See? He took my appointment with death. He took my appointment with judgment. Jesus said as he went to the cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world shall be cast out, the accuser of the brethren. He shall be cast out. Now is the judgment of this world. It is appointed unto men, yes, to die and to face the judgment. We all shall stand before the judgment seat of God and and, and give an account of who we are. But if we have believed, we have someone else has taken our appointment with death and judgment. In fact, even the death itself is not the real death because Jesus said, he who believes in me shall never die. Just the body dies. And then absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have eternal life now. We're not going to get it. We have it now. John says, abiding within us. It's awesome. And that final verse in Romans 14 will close. You can go back and look at that when you have some time. But Romans 14 is simply saying what I just said, that... Everybody's going to stand before God. Don't, Paul, in context, they were saying, don't judge your brother or sister as whether they're a real Christian or not, a real believer or not. Because they were like arguing whether, I don't think he's a real believer because he eats meat, or he drinks wine, or he doesn't observe the Sabbath day. And Paul says, look, all you guys are into observing the Sabbath day and drinking, not drinking wine and not eating meat and stuff, that's an indication that you're weak in the faith, not strong in the faith. Quit judging each other. We're all going to stand before God. Romans 14, 10. We're all going to stand before God. Why, why, are you, why do you judge your brother? God is able to make him stand, and he will. That's what that's what that's talking about. That's not talking about the believer standing for God for rewards. We read so much stuff in that. All of this, it's not right. It's not right. The Apostle Paul never taught such a doctrine. No apostle taught such a doctrine that the believer stands before God and gives an account of his life. Even Jude, Jude, that was hard. It was hard in his letter about false teaching and false prophets. Even Jude says at the end of his letter, God, who is able to make you stand before the presence of His glory exceeding with exceeding joy, blameless. It's either true or it's not. He has made us holy and blameless because we're in Him. It's awesome. To allow the truth grow in us. Let this truth grow in us. Release those saints that still feel like they have to give an account to God of of their lives. The only account we have to give is, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with my son? That's it. The Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world because they believe not on Jesus. That's it. For he he who has believed on him has passed from death and into life. You see it, saints? Awesome. Yes, and then... Maybe they can get you as a guest on that radio station. <laughs> it's not all bad, of course. It's not all bad. Um, there's a lot of good teachers on there. I'm not saying the whole radio station, but, but that's, to me, that's ministerial malpractice.
1: It is, it is ministerial
0: malpractice to teach the body of Christ... That you're going to have to stand before God and give an account of your life, whether it be good, whether it be evil. That's ministerial malpractice. It's lazy exegesis of the scripture. It's wrong. But there are some good teachers on there, um, no doubt. But I just, I get all my soapbox when I hear that stuff. And last one? Yeah. Can we make a really short? there in the Greek. It's Bema. It's Bema. Right. Bema is a place where rewards are given out every four years. That's well, you know. no, no. See, that's, you, you, that's the trap. They they use that argument to say it's a, re, a place of rewards. It's not that. Bema in the Greek means a judge. It's a place of, like a court, a court of law. It's a judge. The, 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 the Bema seat of Christ is not about trophies and rewards. That's why they don't mention that. In, Paul doesn't mention the word reward. That's the—that's what the argument they always use. That it's the in the Greek, that word is a judge in a courtroom. It's it's the same word in the Greek that is used when they brought Paul before the Romans to judge him. The bema—I don't want to get into it right now—but you got to look into this. You got to look search it out. Bema does not mean a place of the Olympics. That's what we've been taught. Yet Paul mentions no rewards in this passage whatsoever. Look up the word bema. Bema means a place of judgment. It's a place that's why they translated judgment. It's judgment. And it's it is it is for it is not for the believer. Lord, thank you so much. Help us see these things and help us be strong and be willing to change our ideas and change our mind about wrong teaching. Thank you so much, Father. You're so awesome. In Jesus' name. Amen.